Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a brief but annoying message to let you know that you could have first heard this episode nine months ago if you were a subscriber to our Iron Filing Society Patreon offering. For the price of a pint and a St. Clement's each month, you can get up to four episodes a week, nine months before the rest of the world gets them. Early access to regular episodes, lots of other marvellous benefits, and there's absolutely no adverts or brief but annoying messages like this that will get right on your ticks. Find out more and subscribe now at tftimemachine.com slash ironfilings. Here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, this is it! This is Top Flight June Machine, I am Andy Hotbody Dawson, bow, bow, bow. I'm Sam Nifty Delaney, so what? Welcome along. It's the third part of the look at the 27th of May 1984 chart, which we both agree is one of the greatest charts has ever been. Um, it was a wonderful summer and uh, we all had a marvellous, marvellous We really time. did. 1984 <laughs> is just so, so 80s, isn't it? When you shut your eyes, you just think yeah. of like everyone wearing bright colours, outrageous fucking stupid haircuts. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Top of the Pops, just that. It's absolute fucking colourful peak. It it was the kind of the peak of eighties pop because it was it was the period before the the retro companies kind of got cynical about things. There was still a kind of a creative independence. It, it, around it was, a lot it of was the pre pre Stock Aitken and Waterman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't got a problem with Stock Aitken and Waterman. No, but it was it saturated the charts. It, it did, and as I say, there's a kind of creative independence still about a lot of the stuff. Yeah, and there was great music for both from the UK and America and a yeah. mix. But when you... I think that every decade has its year that when you picture it, a decade, like the cliches, the tropes that become associated with that decade, right? Put In terms of pop culture, I mean. There is... They're kind of often just distilled in one year. Do you know what I mean? That becomes the defining year. And for the 80s, I've always thought it's 1984, so many different things like you think of like we talk a lot on a recent on on other podcasts it, we did our podcast in empire about um bmx's 1984 for me was like year of bmx year of things like becoming obsessed with break dancing do you know what yeah. i mean yeah all of that stuff hip-hop started like kind of disseminating into the consciousness of suburban brit british kids do you know what I mean? It like exactly. it, it, it finally made the transfer and like just ordinary kids were sort of aware of yeah, people were dressing in that style. All of yeah. this stuff, that bright, colourful eighties sort of like the the eighties cliches that you think <clears throat> of were all in eighty four. Just like the nineties ones are all in ninety six. Year ninety six. And I, I mean, don't know what the seventies ones are. At eighty four course had Frankie Goes to Hollywood being mm. huge. Yeah. And then bandied at the end of the year, so it was Big, big stuff. I had another memory that came back recently. Uh, have you seen the Rick Mail documentary that BBC oh, no. show now and again? It's no. called Lord of Misrule or something like that. Right. It's really good. It just reminds you how fucking amazing Rick Mail was. Yeah. He was just... I think the further away we get from his death, the yeah, more incredible the way, he seems. Isn't it? Yeah. But I, I remember the second series of The Young Ones 
was this month. It was May 1984. Right. And I can distinctly remember um, running down from the field where we used to play football mm. and running home at like 10 to 9 because they knew the new series, the young ones, were starting at 9 o'clock and I knew it was going to be unmissable and it was the episode where they go on University Challenge. <laughs> yeah. Possibly one of the, the best, best yeah, arguably the best yeah. episode, the young ones, yeah. And that's 1984. That's another golden 1984 memory that I've got. Yeah. And I just, it was just a really glorious sunny evening. It was still light because it was, you know, May. I just remember running running oh. home just in time for the, yeah. the young ones. Those, I, I always remember the young ones sitting as a whole family, which we didn't often do, but me, my mum and all of my brothers, it was one of those things where all of you sat down together with, yeah, yeah. huge fucking anticipation excitement. And that, mm. when you think of the young ones, all the bit, I was talking to someone about it just the other day, that exact episode, Scumbag College and all the rest of it. And then, yeah. and I said, you know, I think that's Griff Reese jones's finest ever moment was playing Bamba Gascoigne yes. in that in University Challenge it was like that's yeah. he, that that's the, my favourite thing he's ever done yeah. right he's brilliant yeah. at it but the other great thing about it is, is that you forget is that all those smug footlights kind of you know slightly cuntish but not really because Stephen Fry you know legend and all the rest of it but Stephen Fry Hugh Laurie what's the name Emma Thompson it is mm. Emma Thompson isn't it yeah right they basically, to be fair to them, they absolutely fucking annihilate themselves because they're doing a parody yeah. of, of Footlights College Oxbridge or whatever it's called. Yeah. But they're literally playing like heightened, obnoxious versions of themselves and fair play yeah, to yeah. them for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They absolutely eviscerate yeah. themselves on television, yeah. which is really funny and admirable. Yeah. I'm looking now on the Wikipedia page for the young ones. That series was getting five million viewers on BBC Two. Wow! Like EastEnders now wouldn't get five million viewers probably. Nah, it was was pretty like it was massive culturally seismic. I mean, I think of it yeah. just you talking about it then and thinking, well, Andy was up in Sunderland reacting to it like that, mm. and I was down in London doing it. And there's always different people, and it was like a, very much like Vic and Bob. I think it was like. It was like a club that we didn't know existed. It was like if you yeah. knew, you knew. If you're into that at that age, right? Yeah. After that, you were likely whenever you you cross cross paths in the future, wherever you were from, whatever your family were like, you'd you'd have something in common. Not just the love of that, but there'd probably be a lot of other things that you Lots had in common. A sort similar, of a yeah. world view. Yeah. And there's certain comedies that do that in a way that only sort of music can. It was, it was like Vic and Bob in the sense of it was something you didn't know you needed until it came along. Yeah, it wasn't like anything. It was fuck, and it was so fucking strange in both cases. That's the thing they had in common. Something that was yeah. so strange, you almost felt perverted watching it. I, I yeah. remember having that feeling as a kid watching The Young Ones, and then again a few years later when I was an adolescent watching Vic and Bob, where you thought, mm. this is so fucking weird that I almost feel it's wrong. But that's part yeah. of the appeal. Exactly, exactly. So that there you go again. That's another reason why 1984 was just so fucking yeah. good. Um, but then again, we talked about 1999. I think in one of these chair machine rundowns mm. recently, we both said it was one of the worst shots we've ever been dealt. Mm. But then I saw somebody say in the comments that they were distraught because that was their peak summer. Mm, and but you can't out when you're born. Some people are born. Younger, yeah. Some people are born in a good era, and some people aren't. And you have to accept that. And I had this conversation once. Like I was, um, 
this is such a centrist dad thing to say, but I was talking to my older brother about how I was lucky to be at university the years that I was there, which was between 94 and 97, because that mid-90s period was such a big time for pop culture and therefore a great time to be a student. And he said at the time, because this wasn't long after that era, he was like, do you know what, mate? Everyone thinks that about that. Everyone romanticises their own youth, right? And everyone thinks that that golden time in their life was a broader golden time. And it's not true. And I thought, "Mm, maybe he's right. Well, he was wrong because now it's 20... (laughs) Now it's 20 years later, and although it's a very Keir Starmer-centrist dad thing to say, it's fucking true that that era, of the Euro 96 era, as we call it, right, was a significant cult, pop cultural era, right, that, yeah. uh, that, that defined the times, right? Uh, and so was the mid-80s. And, you know, I wasn't around... I wasn't. I didn't come of age in the second summer of love in the late eighties. I was thirteen, so I wasn't old enough to be going to raves. But when kids who were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen in nineteen eighty-eight say that was an amazing summer that defined the times, I'm like, yeah, mm. that's right. I wasn't born in the right year to sort of appreciate and live that. I just saw it from the sidelines. But you've got to be able to see it, and it's the same with you know all the kids who, who grew up during punk. You know, we were a bit yeah. too young to be involved in all the yeah. gobbing and shenanigans. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You can't help when you're born, but I'm sorry. If your golden era was 1999, I'll tell you this now. You were shortchanged, mate. <laughs> well, there will be younger listeners listening to this going, I know. listen to these fuckers going on about this year again. No, but listen. Was it that good? If you're younger and you have, you know, your golden age of whatever, coming of age, being a student, whatever it was, was at some point in the noughties or the or the teens or whatever, then I'm not denying that that existed. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. You can tell us Do about your own it. Podcast. I'm just you know I'm not saying that we own the golden eras. I'm saying they happen to be ours. But I'm telling you, ninety nine. I'll t- it takes some convincing that that was, and that that was a significant year for pop yeah. culture, right? Yeah. But I'm open to offers on other years. It's just that we wouldn't. We we were we weren't living them in the same way. We were having jobs by the time it was the noughties. There was, uh, you know, the top of the pops repeats that are on BBC Four every mm. Friday night. I, I, I'm persistent with it, but it's it's hard work. I usually record it and fast forward through it and watch the bits that I like. It's 1993 at the minute, and there's kind of a void culturally. There's there's. There's nothing going on. They were waiting it's for so, something to happen in '93. We all tell. were. We were all tell. waiting for we're something just, to happen. It's it's just months away from Pulp and yeah. Blur and yeah. Oasis and everything that came after that. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking, do I need to persist with this and keep watching this? But then I think, yeah, you watch them documentaries where the short went. It had a reboot. Top of the Pops had a reboot, and they'd have different guest presenters each week. And like Jarvis mm. Cocker would present it one week. Or, oh. Didn't know that. You know, or, or even Damon Alban and Jack Dean, mm. people like that. Mm. And you know, that's coming. That's coming down the line. It's just around the corner. Yeah. But you can just see that there's there's just fucking nothing happening. There's mm. like, here's Tina Turner's new single at number seven. <laughs> yeah. And God bless, I love Tina Turner and, and the story of her life and everything and everything she went through to, to, to sort of come back and become this huge star. But the vast majority of Tina Turner's output is dog shit. <laughs> Yeah, you know? yeah. I was really waiting for something to happen. I sensed it. I could see between ninety two and ninety three. I was like, 
I don't know, man. Something's got to happen here. I, I was yeah. n- I was never particularly into grunge, right? Yeah. In in around ninety one, there was some good stuff because there was the sort of um, there was a bit of an acid jazz movement which I was into. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of people were into, it. and also Massive Attack released that album that year and stuff like that. Mm. But then it that kind of drifted away. I'm like you're yeah. sitting around fucking, and I I was never into Nirvana or Pearl Jam. Lots of yeah. people were, but I was just like, well, I find that a bit boring. I like Nirvana, but then Pearl Jam, I just just couldn't understand why that was regarded as good. To be honest, retrospectively, because my my good wife, she was into that music at that time. Retrospectively, there are songs by all those bands that I've got time, but although probably Pearl Jam the least. Smashing, I like some Smashing Pumpkins songs at the time. Yeah. So I would have said, "There, Smashing Pumpkins, fuck off." Like that, yeah. right? But, um, but yeah, there were bands from that I era. I like, like retrospectively, Sonic Youth and Screaming Trees and Mud Honey they, and Dinosaur Junior. They were all getting like major label deals and stuff. Yeah, that was good to see because they'd all been going for a while. But then, like Pearl Jam, just seemed to be they just came out of nowhere. They seemed to be this kind of corporate, nah, nah. label constructed. He's got yeah, his fucking vocals, just fucking that, yeah, Eddie Vedder. Yeah, he needs anyway, to take a fucking we're, we're, chill pill. We're looking at 1984, aren't we? Yeah, so that's much better than 1993. Wasting talking about Pearl yeah. Jam. Um, that, let's have a look down the arse end of the chart. Uh, the Human League and the Lebanon. I, I love the song. Human League. I yeah, love the Human I love League. Them. Yeah, this is regarded as not one of their greatest moments. It's it's the Human League stroking their chins and being serious don't, about don't get political world issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that kind of thing. It wasn't um, what we wanted from the from the Human League. You know, I once invited the Human League onto the uh, much missed, permanently rested Sam Delaney's news thing. I, I asked them yeah. to be the full panel. You know, oh, like we had a panel of three, brilliant. and I yeah. had this idea. I said, let's have the whole panel as the Human League. And you yeah. know how I'd like go, I'd do my silly monologue, and then I'd go, right, what do you think of this, Andy? And I'd come yeah. to you, and then I'd go, what do you think of this, Paul Danan, or Mr. Blobby, whoever the <laughs> fuck it was on the panel, right? And they'd give their answer. And I was obsessed. I told the producer, I want it to be the Human League, and I only ever want to refer to them collectively as the Human League. <laughs> what so do you think the Human I want to do something on energy prices and then go, well, that's the energy price crisis. The Human League, what do you make of this? And just let them answer, right? I just thought it'd be so great. if but, we. And yeah. I, I said to the producer, we should never make a big deal out of the fact that the Human League are our panel. Yeah. It should be really understated. I should just introduce the show and go, right, tonight our special oh, guest is Ken so Livingston and my panel, joining me as my panel, is the Human League. But, like, not make a big deal out of it. Yeah. And he was like, all right, this is a bit weird, but I fine. He was, he'd always back me, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so we emailed, we, we approached the Human League and the Human League got back. And I'm pretty sure that Phil Oakey was the person fielding their email account. Right. Because yeah. the email came back said something like it was a very funny email. It said thank you for for the invite and for sending through um, uh, some links to the show because the producer had sent through here's some examples of the sort of <laughs> shit we're getting away with, right? <laughs> something like that. And he went, we found your show quite amusing, although the bald headed host is rather strident for my tastes. <laughs> Right. Uh, I mean, strident is not something I'm often described as, but who knows what I would have said that week. Sometimes I got so, a bit impassioned. 
You you need to change your Twitter bio to possibly too strident for Phil Oakey's tastes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then they turned it down anyway. Said we don't like to get involved in current affairs or politics. And I yeah. thought I thought at the time I thought well. Fucking hell. We all heard the Lebanon song. You made a slip yeah. up there, didn't you? That's why we've asked you. <laughs> I thought they've got some good views on the Middle East. Let's get them in. Yes, See what they know about 2017. <laughs> yeah, but I was quite proud that. of that. I wish I'd kept that email. It's a good one, isn't it? It is. Jalapeño. Jalapeño. It's got that classic verse. Before he leaves the camp, he stops... He scans the world outside. And where there used to be some shops is where the snipers sometimes hide. Whoa. These <laughs> are pretty good lyrics. There some shops. Fucking hell. He left his home the week before. He thought he'd be like the police. But now he finds he is at war. Weren't we supposed to keep the peace? This is not to Incredibly me. deep. I... I... You know, we know Phil Oakey is a very intelligent person and I don't doubt that he does have some good insight and thoughts on the situation in the Lebanon back then. But it's just not really what we listen to the Human League for. No. I preferred no. romantic vignettes to a synth yeah. background. That's that, that, that that's, the, that's their strong suit, isn't it, lyrically? Yeah. yeah. But it's a good song, though. Good song from, it is the, good song, um, from the follow-up album, I think, to Dare, which was Hysteria. It took them what, nearly three years to put out. Just a quick question just... on on the artist below at thirty seven, Nick Kershaw. Yeah. One of those strange artists you kind of seem to just always be about in mid eighties charts. Yeah. But who were yeah. his fans? I did know a fan. Like there was a guy I knew, and I went back to, from school, and I didn't know him well. But one day after school, he said do you want to come round to mine or whatever? I was like, yeah, all right, I've got nothing else to do. And it was a bit... It, I'm not saying it was like that partridge moment when he goes into the fan's house and there's things of partridge But I remember this guy, I thought, I don't know this guy that well. I don't even know what he's into in particular, but fuck it, he's inviting me round his house, I'll go round there. And I walked have into his bedroom. Yeah, that was that was my attitude. I thought, I'll go and have a look. I want to be, I want to be Britain's top journalist one day, I'll go and have a look. I've got to keep looking at stuff. It's the only way you learn. And he had Nick Kershaw posters everywhere. And I was, I was really stunned and a bit afraid because I thought Nick Kershaw doesn't strike me as the sort of person that anyone is super into. Do you know what mm. I mean? I couldn't mm. see where his demographic were. I thought most people were sort of like, oh yeah, Nick Kershaw, fine. Don't yeah. don't feel strongly either way. This geezer did. He was mm. fucking like the number one fan of Nick Kershaw. I didn't get it. But yeah. I've been from listening to the Rock and Turs. His name's come up a few times, and he seems to be right. referenced as someone. And you might be able to tell me about this. A very well-regarded musician. I think so, because he went on and he wrote lots of hits for other people, I think. Like um, Chesney Hawks, The One right. and Only. That was a Nick Kershaw. Was it? So, that makes sense. Yeah. Like Because did, you, you know when you hear people talking about being in supergroups? Like, I think Mark yeah. King. In the 80s, there was very often supergroups put together. So Phil Collins would always be asked, and he'd get Mark King to play the bass. Yeah. And then whoever, whoever. And... It, and Nick Kershaw and, they go, and we got Nick Kershaw to play guitar and I think yeah. what fucking hell I didn't know that you know you know Mark King's the go-to bassist and you know Phil's the go-to drummer I did not know yeah. Nick Kershaw was the go-to guitarist I, I'll say that Nick Kershaw's pro- probably underrated I was right. well into his stuff at the time Right. I had 
the first two albums. Da- Dancing Girls, the one that's in the chart now, it was like the fourth single off the album. wasn't the greatest. Yeah, can't recall but, it. I mean, I won't let the sun go down on me, wouldn't it be that's good? That's good, yeah. Wouldn't the, the Riddle. The, the Riddle from his second album. Great pop songs. Can't argue uh, with no. it. I don't like the riddle. Bad thing. You don't like the riddle. What did no. you try and work out and realise it was? Bollocks? Yeah, I don't. I don't like riddles generally. I think we've oh, discussed this before. I'm, I'm averse to riddles on the whole. The only riddle that I'm enthusiastic <laughs> about is, is one done by Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. yeah Do you know what I mean? Like the, the fury at the I end. like. I like an angry riddle. An angry riddle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like a clever riddle. Very precise on your policy when it comes to riddles. I am. I am. We've got also straight in at 35. This is revolutionary. Bronski beat, small town boy. Mm. 1984 was probably the gayest year in the 80s in yeah. pop. And some of the Hollywood. Radio 1 DJs were beside themselves with panic <laughs> about it, weren't they? You had Franky Goes to Hollywood who were blatantly overtly gay and weren't afraid to, wonderfully know, gay I would say fantastically yeah, gay you know, Holly Johnson and Paul Rutherford were like we are gay fucking deal with fucking it fucking deal with and this then, Britain and, uh, but then you had the three lads who were at the, at the back mm. who were hugely heterosexual but they were like we'll go along with the gay thing we've got in our band what are you going to do about it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was then, it was really wonderful I felt it was two fingers up to Thatcher yeah. Do you know what I mean? But this Bronski beat were probably the first group that kind of charted really high and just were unashamedly... Well, the video really... to this song is, for me, an important landmark in well, yeah, British exactly. cultural history. I had this on my Smash It to the 80s video, video cassette tape. The one you watched endlessly. Endlessly. But I was already that came out in 87. I was already yeah. familiar with this video and for you know as a, as a young lad it's like you're having your eyes opened all the time mm. uh, you know i think that actually music drifted away and became a bit too heterosexual for a long time again because think of us in the 80s right seeing we've talked before about the first time we saw like boy george marilyn right yeah. then you've got a, a different incarnations of you know uh homosexuality yeah. like the way it was presented by frankie Joe hollywood and then very different again with bronsky beat right this video the song the lyrically it is it has dark themes like difficult themes right but also yeah. the video is a fucking i found it troubling as a kid right because this is about a young lad right who's not in, he's not out of the closet yet. He hasn't told his parents. He's from very old-fashioned fucking family. The story they tell... I'll tell you what, mate. It's like a fucking Ken Loach film in three minutes. Yeah. Even the way it was yeah. filmed, it was gritty, and it was really moving, and he basically ends up... He thinks he's made a connection with a lad at a swimming baths, and the lad yeah. sort of gives him the come on, but then he ends up... It, it's a trick, and he ends up getting beaten up, ambushed by, by, like, what they used to call gay bashing, which went on a lot back yeah. then. And I, yeah, I mean, that was fucking shocking. This was shown on top of the pops. This was about like gay bashing, and then mm. he had to. And then the police in the video—I don't know if you remember—but then he get, he gets a kick in old Jimmy Somerville, and the police take him back to his family house. They give him a lift, and they and they explain what's happened to the dad. Yeah. And the dad, rather than show sympathy, boots him out of the fucking house. That's right. He get the basically gets outed to his family by the old bill by the police. Yeah, and then and the they, give, like, they well, give him a tenner or something, and he fucks off to London. Yeah, he goes, you, you, we can't have you around here anymore. Yeah, there's a tenner, you'll be all right. 
I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked by the whole story. Shocked and yeah. moved. And I think it still stands up now. And when you think this is the era of like Duran Duran doing Rio or Wild Boys and all oh. these kind of huge, glamorous videos... What about the balls on Bronsky beat to release a single and go, we're going to make a gritty kitchen sink drama about homosexuality and coming out of the closet? That's the thing. You mentioned Boy George and and Marilyn. They were kind of like the year before when they were sort of big, but they weren't as overtly militantly gay as Bronsky beat were. Bronsky would be like, this This is our thing. This was just telling a really important story, wasn't it, really? I remember that the first album was called The Age of Consent, and me, my cousin had it, and on the back of the sleeve, there was a list of all the countries, or loads of countries in the world, and told you the age of homosexual Mm. consent in those countries, if indeed there was one. There was, yeah. So they were just like, you know, um, like I say, militant. Yeah, but not in a way that was like... Jimmy Somerville was never like... He didn't come across as someone who was sort of almost aggressive as such. He was militant in as much as they were telling their story and they were... Yeah, they were out. Telling it with conviction. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, it it was pretty... It was it was a big deal, I think, and that video really is. When they look back on like the greatest videos of all time, or the most significant videos, that one has to be up there because I didn't, I'd not fucking heard the. I mean, I would have been nine. I hadn't heard the phrase coming out, and this was at a time of huge AIDS hysteria, which bred a huge amount of homophobia. I remember in yeah. the playground. I mean, we've talked about this before. There was huge, there was rampant homophobia in the playgrounds of Britain. Because yeah. we were have, we've been bombarded with really terrifying messages about AIDS, and the press were presenting it as a gay plague, and as a result, everyone was running around in playgrounds, fucking saying you've got AIDS, you must be gay, and all this sorts of nonsense, right? Um, yeah, we did. It was awful, and uh, I'd not heard of fucking coming out of closet, all of that, but everyone went mental, rightly so. Uh, raved about um, it's a sin. Right, which I think was set in this exact year, the bulk of it, sort of thing. But fuck here now. Bronsky beat small town boy. That looks like a trailer for It's a Sin, mate. Yeah, yeah, totally. So massively revolutionary. And this is the week when it hit the charts, straight into 35. Um, and I guess it, wow, up to 13 the week after, then up to number four, then up to number three. Big, big hit single. But of course, yeah. there's lots of high energy stuff in this chart as well, which mm. was massive in the gear clubs. Evelyn Thomas, high energy. Hazel Dean searching. Um, and of course, Frankie were there as well, relax. So, yes, the gayest year in pop so far, I think. What else was I looking at? Uh, uh, we, well? we mentioned in my all time greatest singles, there are, there are two songs in here that would make my all time top 10. Whoa. And there's two in the same chart. One is automatic by the Pointer Sisters. Yeah. But but one is um, thinking of you by Sister Sledge. Now this must yeah. have been a re-release, right? Wasn't it? That that's it was, earlier yeah. than '84. Yeah, they'd remixed it or re-released it or something. Because it was out in '79, I think originally. Of course, produced by uh, Niall Rogers and Bernard. I think it. I, I think it might be their greatest work. I think it might be Niall and Bernard's greatest song. That. Oh, it wasn't actually a it wasn't actually a hit single. First what the time first round. time round, really? Yeah, it's from the album We Are Family in '79, but it wasn't it wasn't a hit here at least. Ah, uh, now single in '84. Now, uh, what? This is important. You promised okay. me last time round 
that you would explain to me uh, your opinions and thoughts on the song at number 28. Yeah. Yeah. It's Bruce Springsteen, Dancing in the Dark. Mm. And I was just prepared to say that it's his best song. Wholeheartedly agree. Because, because it's a fucking great pop song. Yeah, exactly. It's got the, the lyrics are brilliant about this bloke who's frustrated with his life. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think it taps into a lot of blokes' mentality. We've all thought, yeah. you know. Sitting around here trying to write this book. Yeah, fucking hell. Know? We've all been there. And it is just an absolute monster pop song. It's fucking a unreal. Fantastic song. Course, really catchy. And I'm not massively into Bruce Springsteen. I can kind of see why people love him. Yeah. Um,. But, you know, you'll get these things in Uncut Magazine where it's Bruce Springsteen's 50th greatest songs yeah. and it'll be, it'll be track five from side two of The River yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to big Springsteen fans, I get it, but for me, that's slightly farty music on the whole. But <laughs> with, the, with the exception of the wondrous album Born in the USA. And yeah. I, but, you know, I'm the same with... with I mean... I'm a bigger fan of Bowie in terms of I know more of his songs, I like more of his songs. But my favourite Bowie song is Modern Love, right? Because yeah. there is no more poppy song than he ever did than Modern Love, yeah. right? It's fucking. It's it, the Let's Dance album where he went, right, fuck this. I'm he got Nile Rogers to do hits. it, yeah. right? It's absolutely sensational, right? Mm. Actually, there's a great story on Nile Rogers. Um, uh, episode of uh, I won't go into it on on Rock and Tours about him making that in Switzerland with Bowie uh, uh, right. uh, Bowie's Swiss lair right yeah. amazing and um, and uh, that's yeah for me that's Bowie's great stuff because it's his poppiest stuff and ditto Bruce Springsteen Bruce Springsteen for me personally my favourite stuff of his is same era born in the USA and this is born the best song this is a fucking banger of a tune yeah and probably maybe my second favourite Springsteen song's probably Streets of Philadelphia, which we've got oh, number two. Love that. Again, great pop song. Yeah, brilliant. So, Absolutely brilliant. That's about well, eight, isn't it? Yeah. There you go. We've got a full circle there. Film. And yeah. let's not forget as well the video to Dancing in the Dark featuring a young Courtney Cox. Exactly. Who he gets up on stage to dance with him, and that's a great a moment. around with. Yeah. yeah. Um, I reckon we've possibly wrong this chart dry now I we've ripped the arse really out of this chart about. I'll mention I'll mention Howard Jones who always felt like he was kind of in lockstep with Nick Kershaw they both came out yeah. about the same time mm. and had hits and I was into Similar Howard Jones hair. as well as Nick Kershaw were you I'm surprised both, by yeah, that I was into all that synth solo mm. uh, pop stuff dancing yeah. around behind a keyboard yeah all of that yeah yeah. I'm nothing if not a futurist no, that's right you don't, I always think you've got one foot in the future yeah, half a yeah. foot in the prison and just the heel of your boot in the past. That's just, what I tell just, people about you when they ask me what it's like yeah. to work with you. Yeah, and they'll say, "Where's his instep?" And you say, "It's hard to tell." It's, funnily enough, it's it's always moving, but imperceptibly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hinge on yeah. which the whole thing you know, operates from. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we've we've done this chart some justice by yeah. three episodes Hope out of so. it. I'm quite scared of what we'll get next time but it's going to be hard to live it. up to this fucker it is it is so there you go thank you very much for listening and goodbye goodbye
Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.